Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome once again to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik, from Venture Superfly, where we help to double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today, I'm interviewing Jason Leventhal. Jason started his entrepreneurial career building one of the first twin-tip downhill skis as a college project at the University of Buffalo in New York in 1995. After graduating, he moved home and continued building skis in his parents' garage, leading to the creation of the now highly respected ski company called Line, which is credited for pioneering the innovative modern ski designs enjoyed today. In 2006, Jason sold the company to K2 Sports and continued working for them, driving Line to become one of the top ski brands in the United States. While working for K2, he also launched a ski boot brand called Full Tilt, which quickly became globally recognized, known for bringing back to life the original three-piece ski boot design. Recently, in 2013, he went back to his entrepreneurial roots to start a new ski company. This time, he set out to disrupt the traditional marketing, sales, and distribution model by selling limited edition skis exclusively and directly to consumers on his website at jskis.com. Jason, thanks for taking the time, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Right on. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. And the final part, Jason, is the Let's Get Personal piece, where we get into the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Jason, what do you think? Are you ready for some questions? Sure. (laughs) Anytime. Awesome. Jason, tell us the story. How did you originally discover the idea for line skis? Well, really, as a consumer, like I think most good ideas come from uh, actually using the product yourself. I always loved skiing. Um, It was my favorite sport. I got into snowboarding when that came about, Um, BMX biking, skateboarding, wakeboarding. All those action sports in the 80s were coming to be, and they were really just an evolution of product that enabled people to do so much more on a product. For instance, think about like a cycling bike, you know, racing road bikes. They've been around forever, and then one day someone said, hey, let's put suspension on them. Boom, now you can go down a hill, you know, ride down a mountain, um, and it created a whole other segment, enabled people to do so much more on, on the product, and rejuvenated the sport ultimately. And that was happening in all these other sports, except for skiing. And so me being a skier, I had always thought, man, why can't I go backwards on my skis? I can do it on my snowboard, my wakeboard, my inline skates, my skateboard. You know, I, I, was, I started feeling more and more limited the more I participated in snowboarding, the more I thought, 
why can't I do this on skis? And it just kind of built up over the years. And eventually uh, at the University of Buffalo, a senior project, I was going for graphic and product design. And uh, we can d- create anything we wanted, you know, basic, using a wood shop, basically, nothing too high tech. And so I had some friends and at the time that were making snowboards, lots of people were making snowboards out of their garages, small startups. And I said, well, I'm going to make a ski. I'm going to make a twin tip deep side cut just like a snowboard so you can carve make it wider like a snowboard so you can float in the powder better and i came up with this kind of shorter twin tip ski it's actually a lot closer to skis today even though it was really out there at the time and at the time were there any other twin tip skis available well i i definitely didn't you know no idea is is new it's always an evolution of something else and it's you know, years later, I found out there were actually twin tip wooden skis back in the day for like taking photos on mountains and things. So I didn't, I didn't quite invent it, but I definitely created more of the modern day brand and dedicated uh, brand to push the sport in that direction. So I was definitely one of the first, if not the first, uh, modern day twin tip skis. And what type of retailers did you originally start selling those to? Well, anyone that would buy, I mean, no one wanted wanted them really. I mean, because retailers, they just want to buy what people already want and no one knew about my product. So that's always the most challenging part is distribution. You know, you have a great idea and your five friends are all about it and they buy it from you. Now what? You know, so it actually, uh, I didn't sell anything to a retailer until I went to a trade show and a year later, I went to SIA Ski Industries trade show, and even then, there were no U.S. retailers at that U.S. show that wanted anything to do with it. I might have talked to three people, but I happened to have gotten talked to a Japanese distributor, and weeks later, actually, after the show was over, I was home. I got a fax from a local copy store, and they called me on the phone. Hey, you have a fax from Japan, so I drove over there, and I looked, and it was an order for a thousand pair. Now, at the time, I only made probably thirty pair in my garage. It would take me a full day to make a pair at least, and you know, I'd use them with my friends. And so everyone was like, well, "What the hell are you gonna do, man? That's a huge like you can't do that." And I was like, "Well, this is the best problem I could ever have. Someone actually wants this thing, you know? They want what I'm making." So this guy in Japan got it. He understood what I was doing, and he uh, I convinced him to put half down a deposit on it and I went to a local bank that was kind of a smaller bank and I got a, um, a loan against the order as well moved out of my parents garage and I mean you can imagine making one a day that's not going to happen you know it's going to take me three years to make them so moved out of the garage and basically started up a factory hired my friends family anyone that would work for me that summer and by the end of summer somehow we built a thousand pair of these things it was gnarly but we did it yeah that is very interesting and who was this person? Was he a established distributor, a retailer? What was he? Yeah, he was an established distributor of winter sporting goods in Japan. And in Japan, there was already there was a bit more of a Bigfoot craze. It was called like there was these little they're called big feet, but they're little short skis, kind of like what I'm making, but more toy version. So for him, he was like he understood how this could be used, but then understood there was like a higher performance of uh, what I'm what I'm bringing so he just went for it and you know even after that the next trade show I went no one was interested in my skis again in the U.S. still and the only way I finally clicked was when Salomon one of the biggest ski companies uh, in the world they actually created a similar product and when they brought it to the trade show it was the second 
second or third year of the show, um, suddenly they opened the minds of the retailers. I mean, they had the reach. And, and that's the thing you don't realize. Like, you're pioneering something. You might understand it. You get it. You, you've somewhat invented, you know, something unique that people should want, whether it's better or just different. But it doesn't really matter if no one knows about it. No one's convinced. And you don't have the marketing budget to, to reach them, you know, or the distribution. So Solomon, they had the reach. They were global. They put this thing called the Snowblade into the market. They literally had demo tents at every mountain. <clears throat> they um, they just forced it into the stores, and they, including the X Games uh, in 97. That was the first X Games that skiing was in. Solomon was a sponsor, and they literally paid the X Games to put this kind of quote-unquote new sport. It's basically skiing, but it was a slope style. I mean, skiing at the time was either moguls or racing. You know, there was no skiers weren't even allowed in the train parks. You know, train parks where you can do tricks like snowboarders. They were called snowboard parks, actually. So anyway, Solomon pays the X Games to put this sport in there as a slope style event, and so it was the first skiing slope style. And me, my friend Mike Nick, um, and myself, we were in it, and he won the gold, and I won the bronze, and. Um, it, from there, it just blew up, you know, because we were the we were like the core users of the product that built the product. Like it was like a rider own, rider driven brand that had the recognition now of the X Games and had the distribution awareness that Solomon built. And by that next trade show, I was getting orders like crazy all over the U.S. and everywhere. So when you went to that third trade show, that SIA show, did you? know that Solomon was going to come with the Snowblade? I heard a couple of rumors about it, and I kind of blew it off as like, ah, oh, well, you know, they're kind of copying me, but I guess I'm kind of honored by it. I didn't know exactly what it was going to, what form it was going to look like. Um, and I also didn't realize it was going to help me like that. I, you know, I was kind of like, well, we, we know what we're doing. Like, we're, you know, we're the hardcore skiers that know what's up. Like, it was I, was I was definitely taken back like were you threatened by it I, I think I was so young and inexperienced I had no clue I was just doing my thing and you know we were our own crew and we showed up and I do remember walking over that booth after hearing about it and there was a TV screen made of multiple screens that was like literally like 20 30 feet wide and huge video of people doing the stuff we were been doing um, on this product. This was before the X Games, okay? This was the trade show just before the X Games that I was in. And I was like, holy, like these guys are putting insane amount of money into this. Like it was front and center, the one and only thing. Now you gotta remember at the time, skiing was declining. It was, it was hurting. Snowboarding was kicking its ass. It was, every kid was buying snowboard magazines, snowboard videos, snowboards. You couldn't sell a ski to a kid. And they weren't allowed in the park on ski, so why would you? So Solomon sees this as an opportunity to rejuvenate the sport, just as I did. But they went all out. I mean, they had demo tents that winter at every mountain, the base of the mountains, on, in front of the, the ski shops. I mean, it was you could not ignore it. And so I was definitely taken back by it. There's one other part of this story where before this show, Dina Star, you know, a well-known European ski company, the distributor, the president of the company in the U.S. came to my little shop. Like I have a 2,000 square foot little factory. Me and my friends building skis. He's like, hey, can I come over? Sure. 
drives down a few hours to Albany, and he's like, hey, we, we want to get into this, and we'd like you to build our skis. They're called ski boards. That's what people call them. And he said he wanted 100 pairs. He was going to buy them for samples for this trade show that we were going to. I'm kind of skipping around here. But anyway, I was like, sure, you know, an order for 100, that's going to be huge. Like, that's more than I've sold in the U.S. ever. So I took the order, and I basically built our skis with his graphic. I go to the trade show, the same one where I see that Salmon uh, display. And I go into his booth, and there's my ski boards that I made for Star with their logo, but it says Made in France. I Is got right? so taken by that. So basically, he pulls me in a room. I mean, I'm like 23, 24 years old. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just like floored. Just like, what the, you know? What? And he's like, I'm really, really sorry. Like, we, we the, France said they didn't want to make these things. And then, so I went out to make them with you instead. And then once they saw that, they said, this is unacceptable. We need to be the ones making it. They made the exact same product as mine. It was nuts. <laughs> so I was just like, I didn't know what to think. You know, like, I was disappointed. I, but, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm just a kid in a garage, you know what I mean? I'm not going to sue him or I have no leverage. So, And there's nothing I can do. It's just a ski. So I don't know. I don't know what, what I would have done different, but that's how it went. And But then when we showed up at that next X Games, you know, that spring after the trade show, and we won it, we took home all the glory that they paved the way for, you know. So it's kind of a win-win for everyone. You just, I guess at the end of the day, competition can be a good thing too right and jason most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected and they often have to scramble and make changes to survive but it sounded like you really had the product sort of figured out by the time it started taking off do you recall any adjustments or pivots that you had to make to the product to make sure that it was more dialed into the market in some ways my closed-mindedness helped because in terms of closed-minded, I wasn't thinking of all the mainstream consumers and I wasn't thinking about price point. I wasn't thinking about getting a low enough price to sell more. All I was thinking about is making the best possible product at any cost. So I didn't care what it cost me. I don't know if I even made any money selling them, honestly, at the time. I didn't know what margin even was. I just put everything I got into making it better. So I put... Um, aluminum bindings on them when the competition was putting plastic bindings. I was using thicker base, thicker edges, wood cores. Like I was trying to build this high-performance product where everyone else was trying to just make it affordable and sell as many as possible. So, you know, today I would have looked at it and said, wait a second, my prices are off, I'm not making enough money, and maybe it would have been different, but I'm kind of glad I did at the time because it put us in a position of high performance and a respected brand that we might have not been able to get to. So I just kept going that way while the competition went lower price, lower performance, I went higher. Yeah, you were almost trying to really lead and spearhead the that new genre of skiing, it sounded like, and, and wanted yeah. to lead in that, make it legitimate. Exactly. Now, let's say going into that third trade show, that third year, what was the scope of your product line at that time? It was like four different skis these little ski boards i mean they were like 90 centimeters to like 100 and i mean there wasn't much difference um maybe i had a, a more affordable binding but still pretty high performance um it wasn't until 
99 when I started making the longer skis. Um, and that was kind of like a whole new rejuvenation of skiing where we took all the design aspects that had been developed on this ski and just made them longer. And, and that basically was the modern day ski, you know, where they're wider, twin tip, deep side cut, but full length, you know, like 160 to 190. But that was in 99, a few trade shows later. And that's that was like right when Solomon was coming out with their 1080, which was one of their first longer twin tip. But my skis were always like full height tip and tail. I just always went maxed everything out. I was always thinking much further ahead. I mean, the ski I had in 1999, you could sell today, honestly. It's not, it's, it's maybe a hair narrower. That's about it. In the first three years, let's say year yeah. one, two, three, at your peak of operations, along each of those years, how many employees did you have in year one, two, and three? Um, I mean, the thing is, I had a factory, so we were just building stuff. I mean, that's what I don't have today. I don't I don't waste my, I don't distract myself with things that other people can do better than me. But back then, I didn't know any better, and I was just doing everything. I was packing boxes, storing stuff, shipping, shipping product. I was building it, so we probably had four to six employees, I suppose. I mean, we were building a couple thousand. We got up to like 4,000 pair a year by 99. Yeah. And how did you come up with the name Line Skis? Just a line you take, like, you know, down a hill, like choose a line. I was always in the bump skiing before parks. And, you know, just take a line. To get, you get equated to take a line in life, too, but it pretty much came from skiing. So Jason, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Jason, let's talk about raising capital. In those early days with Line Skis, did you originally raise money for Line? I didn't get any investors. I just somehow used uh, working export capital loans through banks to uh, against the orders I had. Like for Japan, it was an export loan against their order. And in the US, you know, I collected what they call booking orders, you know, orders before I started building the skis and I would get loans against those, you know. At any point along that journey with line skis, maybe those first three or four years, maybe five years, did you ever raise capital with investors? <laughs> Somehow I didn't. I mean, there was really anyone that would look at those books. I don't even know how I got bank loans, honestly. Like it's, it, it, I was losing money. That's it. Like I wasn't making anything. I didn't know what my costs were. I didn't know anything. I just got orders, ordered product, and I go more into debt. I mean, by the time I was done in '99, I owed three hundred thousand dollars to the banks. I owed uh, probably sixty, seventy thousand dollars in credit cards. I owed my parents like thirty grand and. Uh, it, uh, that's when I ended up basically hitting a wall. Um, I was not, I, I didn't know, you can't learn much from me about how to run a company when I first started. I was just a kid. But I mean, I, I eventually, in 99, I was looking for someone to invest or buy the company. And that's what I, how I ended up in Burlington, Vermont. I basically sold the majority of the ownership to Carhu. They make cross-country skis up in Burlington, Vermont. And I, you know, just in the nick of time, I mean, I literally had like, thousand bucks in my bank account they they did that and they paid off all my debt i mean i went to that trade show though in 99 with all these new skis people were patting me on the back you know we're right there at the forefront developing the longer twin tip skis with all the big brands 
people are saying, you're doing great, love your product, it's selling awesome. Well, meanwhile, they didn't know I had like a thousand bucks in my bank account. I told my employees before the show, I said, we're going to the show and if we don't get, like we're going to go all in, like we're going to act like we're kicking ass and we're going to sell skis like our life depends on it. But literally, if we don't get an investor when we get back, I'm not going to be able to pay and we're going to go out of business. So let's go for broke, literally. And that that year, you know, after I talked to Caro at the show and a few months later we did the deal and I moved up to Burlington. They bought, paid off my debt and they took over the manufacturing. They already had a factory building product. They had operations. They, you know, they had all the, the nuts and bolts of a, a well-orchestrated business that I didn't. And then I continued to drive the product, the marketing, you know, the sales messaging and all that, everything that I was the best at. So it was a really good partnership. And, but what's, what I think the key takeaway here is I remember being at that trade show for a number of years with my own outerwear company. And I would just look around and wonder how a lot of these companies are making money. There were a lot of these startups <laughs> doing things and they were exactly. And I might be there for the second or third or fourth year and seeing these startup brands coming in, looking like they have a lot of money. But I, I just didn't realize how they could keep coming back year after year because I could figure out in a rough sort of envelope sort of way, what the number of units they were selling. I just didn't know how they, they were doing it. So the again, the key takeaway here is sometimes businesses look like they're doing really well, but you just never know, do you? No, and today you see, I see it all the time. I know what people are doing. I know their companies, ski companies especially, seasonal business, they've been around for 10 years and they still haven't made money. They're just all each year going and getting another investor, another investor. I mean, it's it's... It's gnarly, and that's why I decided to come full circle now with the company I have, and it's the exact opposite the way I'm running it now. Yeah, so tell us about J-Skis and how you decided to launch that business. The thing is with, with Line, when it, you know, I sold it to Caro in 99, so we became kind of a bigger company, part of a bigger company, and by 2006, believe it or not, we ran out of money again. I mean, we basically just, there's economies of scale that you can't reach, you know, meaning you need to hit a certain volume to make, take a little margin that you make off of each unit you sell. You got to do huge volume to pay all the bills of just the basics, you know, just sales manager, sales reps, distribution, you know, meetings and operations and all that. You, there's just a minimum and that minimum is about 30,000 pairs of skis just to cover all of your costs, the traditional business and distribution way of doing things. So in 06, we had to again wave the white flag and say help and K2, ski, uh, K2 Sports bought line. And so I continued working for them. They're a public company. I learned a lot in those next six years just about what it's like working for a public company. Basically, how to cut, cut, cut all your costs, all your expenses. They're just, it's all about the bottom line every quarter. So totally different way of going about it. So I feel like going on my own, then working for a medium-sized company privately, then working for a public company for seven years. I learned everything I could. And at that point, I was like, enough's enough. I'm breaking out and I'm going to do my own thing again. But this time... It's 2013, I'm going to leverage the internet. You know, that's basically was my main driver in terms of thinking I can do this totally different than I did the first time. Those times, transitions, either of those three phases, you know. So 
my main thing is selling direct, you know, right now. So I, I one, I sell limited edition skis. So there's a limited amount of product in the market. It's not when traditionally in the ski industry, there's just overproduction. I mean, there's just too much product and then everyone has to discount it and no one makes any good money on it. And it just ends up being this price war. So this time I'm just selling only, let's say, 100 or 200 of a specific graphic. Once it's gone, it's gone. I release the next one. I hand sign a number of ski. So it's kind of a boutique model, business model, limited supply, and then I sell direct only through my website. And I didn't know if that was going to work, you know, because everyone sells through retailers and distributors and, you know, people think you have to go into a store and actually touch and feel the ski to buy it, but it's not the case anymore. You know, people thought that about shoes when Zappos launched. Um, do you bother so, going to the trade shows anymore? No, no, I don't do any, I do everything opposite. And it's, that's, that's really what's gotten me the furthest just on every decision, not even just recently, but my entire career. I've always just done opposite. Like I don't even look at what the competition does because if you start looking at what everyone else does, you start doing what everyone else does. So I just said, I am not going to sell the store. So I'm eliminating an enormous amount of the cost. So I don't pay 7% to the sales rep to sell it to the store. I don't pay hundred grand to a sales manager to manage the rep to, to, to sell it to the store. I don't wait to get paid six months. You know, when you sell to a store, you don't get paid until the store sells them pretty much. If you're lucky, a lot of times shops just don't pay you. Um, I don't have trade show. I don't go to trade shows, huge expense. There's no sales meetings. There's no dealer catalog. Um, there's no management of all those retail accounts or distributor accounts. And then on top of that, you're making three times the profit margin. So if you ski sells in a store for $600, you sell it to the store for 300 as a small brand, you build a ski for two. So you build it for two, you sell it to a store for three, and they sell it for six. So you're only making a hundred bucks traditional in the you know, if you sell to stores as a small brand. And there's a lot of other expenses I already listed that I don't do, or that I wouldn't have needed. There's a whole set of expenses that go along with that in addition. So the hundred bucks you make on a pair of skis probably at the end of the day is like 50 bucks. So you have to sell 30,000 of them. And it's gonna take you 15 years maybe 20 to get to that volume in which at which point you're going to go out of business like you're not going to be able to last that long without that profit so it's suicide and that's what I did the first time that's what a lot of these companies do so instead this time I'm selling direct I'm making I'm I'm selling it directly to the consumer for the same retail price 600 bucks but it cost me 200 so now my profit's 400 and I don't have all the expenses of you know managing retail distribution and how are so, you raising awareness and demand for the product over the internet? What is your best strategy well, there? Well, that's the thing is you still need to sell a certain quantity. And I, I figured out um, before I started this company that to pay myself what I was making working for K2 Sports, I needed to sell 2,000 pair. So that was my break-even quantity number. And that's what is taking me and I and I set out to do it in three years and, and it actually happened. I'm I'm kind of honestly surprised. Like it was no sure thing. That that two thousand pair just puts me at a point where I make enough profit to pay all my bills and do the marketing I need, which is totally different than than in the past. Like in the past marketing was six magazine ads a year. 
you know, I mean, that's all the marketing, that's all you could do is magazines. Like today, you know, with social media, I'm doing three social media posts a day, seven days a week, sending an email to a 30,000, you know, customer email database I have twice a week and just, you know, testimonials and reviews and magazine reviews, you know, for product tests and, and it's working. I mean, I also am leveraging 20 years of experience and following, I mean, I've sold hundreds of thousands of skis you know, under my other previous brands. It's not like you just go out there and boom, you're going to hit 2,000 pair in three years. But the fact is you can be a lot smaller and today you can outsource everything. So if you come visit me, you'll see me in a laptop and you'll see another guy I hired just out of college in a computer. There's two dudes and a, two computers. That's what's running this whole business. There's no giant office. There's no like business cards. There's it's just super, super lean. And I mean, I'm outsourcing the manufacturing who are building it to my specs. I pay an engineer as I need him. Um, I pay a graphic designer as I need them, a web programmer as I need. I pay $79 a month for my website that I, I, I did a million and a half in sales this past year through it. Wow. You know, for 79 bucks a month, dude. I mean, you couldn't do that 10 years ago. Right. So there's all these, you know, off-the-shelf resources. Everyone has their arm and hand in the air. Everyone has their hand in the air ready to offer you whatever it is you need. It's a matter of you deciding and, you know, filtering through and directing them so that it's specific to your needs and and it's yours, you know. Who's doing the manufacturing Um, now of the skis? Is it domestic or are you doing that overseas? I'm building the skis in Canada. Um, it's a super small factory that builds skis and snowboards, and they, they grew with me over the last few years. The My engineer, Francois Sylvain, he's, I think he's the best ski engineer in the world. He worked with me for the line for, you know, 10-plus years, some of the most the best skis we designed. So I know the, who are the best in the industry, you know, and I go to them. But I also, for instance, the factory isn't the biggest factory. It's not the cheapest factory. You know, I could have gone to Asia cheaper. I could have gone to Europe for bigger um, maybe more high tech, but you got to find that balance. I mean, I can talk on my time zone in my language. Um, you know, I can drive there in seven hours. It's the closest factory I can drive to. He's, you know, they snowboard, they ski, they understand what I'm trying to make, unlike a factory in Asia. So you got to weigh your values. You know, it's worth sometimes paying a little more for something you know is right um, and easier to work with, knowing that you have more margin to spare you know, because you're selling direct. And I also have more flexibility. So I'm, if I come up with an idea, you say, hey, Jay, you should make a shirt that says this. I can do that. Put it on my website in Photoshop. You know, have a fake product on my website, basically selling pixels. Take orders for it for the next three weeks before it gets delivered. And the day it hits, I already sold half of them. You know, and then I ship it out. Like, you can't do that through a d- traditional business model selling to retailers. It's It's impossible because... You can't even, I just changed the price this morning. I, I had a bunch of leftover top sheets, the graphics on the plastic that we, we build the skis out of. And the factory, I said, hey, ship them down, see if I can sell them. I had an intern take a photo of them in front of a brick wall, put them on the website last night. We're selling them for 60 bucks, and we already sold six of them. I mean, that's a two-year process through retailers because first you have to go to the trade show, 
you know, in the spring, you go to the trade show and you show the retailers, you visit the store, they try it, you talk about them, they place an order two months later, you spend all summer building it, the next winter you ship it to the retailer, finally the consumer has access. I mean, that's a good year. And if you were to develop a product from scratch, you'd be starting that even a year earlier. So from the time you come up with the idea to the time it's in the consumer's hands, traditionally, it's at least two years. In this case, I'm doing it in days right. if I want. You know, so I can just react to the market trends much faster um, and and we can adjust instantly instead of having to wait two years. Like, let's say you go to a uh, show a store, this product for four hundred dollars. Two months later, you're like, wow, you know, this not many shops bought this. And, and a lot of them were telling me it was too high priced or a lot of them were telling me it doesn't have this material in it. So now you're stuck. You have to now spend the summer building a product that isn't optimal at the wrong price. Then you deliver it. You're not going to sell as many. The next year, you finally can make a change to the price of the product. And so, you know, you can evolve so much faster selling direct because everything's real time. Like I can, those top sheets I just put on my website, I can raise them 10 bucks. I can lower them 10 bucks. I don't have to check with 500 stores and make sure they're okay with it. Jason, what do you think are the top two or three skills, new skills that you're learning and developing and cultivating based on this new business model? Um, I'd say one of the top skills I'm developing, forced to develop, is learning constantly, like being open-minded enough to constantly learn new systems. You know, for, for instance, because things change so fast, for instance, MailChimp, I was using that as my email sending program um, app, and then I learned that Clavio, this other app, was able to actually dig into my customer base through my website, figure out how much money each customer spent, send specific emails, so now I switched over to that. Now I have to learn this whole new program for sending emails, and then they're constantly coming out with new stuff. Same with social media. I mean, there's just always new features, new things, new ways to reach your consumer, and it's pretty tough like to actually stay on top and not just blow it off as like, ah, whatever, I'm doing it this way. I mean, if you stick to what you're doing today, tomorrow, you're going to be outdated by then. You know, it just, you instantly get outdated or you can instantly progress with it and gain so much that you're, maybe your competition isn't um, by leveraging new digital features. I think the other thing is just being really... Um, reactive you know like trying to quickly understand what's working and not and adjusting like in the past you would put your print ads out in the magazines and you wait till next year to decide what to change now i can look at google ads you know google analytics and see that these five ads are driving sales these five aren't i need to change that right away because otherwise i'm wasting money so just really fast reaction time to what's work. Do more of what's working, less of what isn't, but doing it constantly analyzing that. So Jason, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. And starting a business, <laughs> yeah. isn't that true, right? Oh it's, yeah, I do the same. And starting a business is so special and really unusual, frankly. What motivates a person like you, Jason Leventhal, even starting in the early days with a line? What motivates somebody like you to stop just talking about it, 
but actually go out and start a business like Line or Jay Skis? For me, you're right about everyone thinks about starting a company way more than they do it because it's easy to come up with ideas. And there's a lot of people that say, hey, I have this idea from, like, that's great, but it's whoever executes it. It's like not even doing it, but then you have to actually execute it the best. So there's like so many levels before you actually have a company. And to me, having a company isn't getting a business card in an office and, and saying in a website, like having a company is a sustainable business. Like that's a company before then it's just an art project really. And for me, I spend years, I mean, it's almost embarrassing how many years I'll think about an idea and I'll sometimes mention it to different people and get their reaction, not in a way that's like organized and strategic. I'll just casually be daydreaming about stuff and eventually, I think what drives me to actually start it is I just have to convince myself. I like, like, I think it's a good idea from day one, but there has to be something where I'm just like, oh my God, this is the greatest, you know, you have to get into this zone where it's more a point in your life where you have maybe the freedom to think that deeply about it and the freedom and time to go for it. You know, a lot of times the time just isn't right in your life. Or maybe it's a point where you have to do something. Like you're forced, you just lost your job. You're like, dude, this is it. I can go get another lame job or I can just go for it and learn. And if nothing else, you're going to learn. So there's no harm in trying. I mean, I always suggest keep your day job. I mean, there's nothing better than having a, an income and then, you know, taking kind of baby steps into it. Like for me with this with line, I, you know, I started making skis as a college project and I started making my garage before I really said, okay, now it's going to be my business with, with this brand. I actually just knew if I don't do it now, it's kind of now or never because of my age was one of the parameters. Like, you know, I was turning 40 and I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm be too old, don't have the energy for it and won't be relevant. So that was a driver. So one other driver is just that like, if you don't do it, someone else will. That's probably the biggest. Do you think you're a creator at heart? Yeah, I don't think I'm like a business person. I'm not like that financially savvy at all. I'm just creative. I, I like coming up with ideas, but unfortunately, not not unfortunately, but I like coming up with ideas, and if I don't do it, who is? I think if someone else had made a twin tip ski that I enjoyed riding, I wouldn't have bothered starting my own brand. Because for me, I really believe no one needs more of the same thing, okay? So... Even if I have a great idea for something, if someone else is doing it, I'm not going to bother unless I do it completely different and there's a good reason for it. What has been your biggest joy since you've started your own business or businesses? I never stop to actually think about what the biggest joy of it is, but I do know that it's the satisfaction of, you know, driving driving the machine, you know, go going my own direction, my own whim and I, I actually enjoy taking risks. It's actually really stressful. Like I don't enjoy the stress, but I do enjoy the risk. And it's kind of like skiing. Like you hit a jump and you don't know if you're going to land it every time, but you kind of go for it. I like the unknown. I get very bored if I was just going to come into work and it was the same old thing. Like I'm always thinking of a new business, a new product. I rarely actually execute it and act on that, but it's really fun to do something different. I, I'm kind of... I don't have a lot of big attention span. Like I don't read a lot. Like I like to just do, do and 
do it, go for it, make things happen and change things, whether it's good or bad. Jason, what have you been most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? I'm most proud of making change happen. Like I just like changing things, not for the sake of change, but for the sake of improvement or more enjoyment of a product or a sport. So what if I look back and just say, this is better, skiing is more fun, it, you know, or for my new business, I actually get enjoyment out of knowing that I kind of solved the problem. I created a small ski company that is not going to go out of business. It's financially sustainable. And I'd like to have others follow um, that, you know, strategy so they can be sustainable because I don't like seeing small companies struggle and, and go under trying to do things in a way that I already know doesn't work. So I get a lot of joy out of just trying to figure out the, the best business formula and helping others um, by utilizing what I learned. Do you think you've influenced others at this stage with the new business model and, and your new approach? Yeah, definitely. People are always asking me like how's it going but like more than just how it's going like like really how is this going like is this working for you because they know the other way doesn't you know and i know it's not working for them doing it the other way um and so there's there's been a few instances where i've literally like had long conversations and helped strategically with their planning um, in operations of other small ski companies. And I offer all of them. I offer that to all of them. I, contrary to what most people think, like I actually think the more brands in your space, the better sometimes because there's more voices all preaching the same message so that when you go to a consumer and, you know, tell them what you're doing, it's not so odd. I guess because I spent so many years being the oddball, you know. So now I love it when little ski companies, you know, the more the the more the better. The more voice, the more voices, all preaching, you know, a variety of flavors. You know, it's like Ben and Jerry's ice cream. The more flavor, the better. So the more brands, the better for skiing, anyway. Since you've been an entrepreneur, what has been your biggest frustration? Um, my biggest frustration is always financing just money you know i don't i don't enjoy figuring that out you have to go get a loan every year and you got to put all the numbers together it's really a healthy thing to do I, I don't think there's anything better than actually making a spreadsheet that shows the next 12 months of planning and what you're spending and selling it's really good for you but i just hate doing it man i mean i just want to create cool stuff but but i do it and every time like i give it to the bank and say hey this is how much money i need this is why at the end, I go, wow, like this is really valuable info for myself, you know. And um, so I try to force myself to to really put a lot into that, the detail of that information. Jason, as you know, starting a business is really difficult. And many entrepreneurs, even very seasoned and successful ones, they experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. Oh, yeah. How much self-doubt have you had? if any, and what have you done to deal with it? I mean, I always have doubt. I honestly still don't know where I'll be a year from now, but I hope for the best and plan for the worst. So I'll tell you that I'm going to kick ass next year and where I'm going because you have to be confident in it. But I'm also in my budget. 
I'll put in their buffer. So if I sell 10 or 15% less, I know I'm going to still be in business. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, you got to get your own back, you know, you got to go for the goal, but, but prepare for whatever it is you're doubting. Um, and then if you actually make it, it's all high fives. You're like, wow, that's great. And you can spend probably a total of 15 seconds celebrating before you have to figure out how you're going to do it again next year. So the other thing is just, if, if you overthink it, if you're, if you're, um, dwell on it, you know, like you're lying in bed at night and you're thinking all the things that can go wrong. I mean, just start working, like <laughs> just like open up the spreadsheet and figure out how you're going to do things. And usually just staying busy helps you not dwell on, on the doubt that that is obviously going to exist no matter what. What have you learned most about yourself in starting businesses? I definitely never give up. I don't know why, because sometimes I'm just even ask myself, why am I, why won't I just like move on? And I mean, so like last year I was like hundreds of thousands of dollars owed to banks, you know, I have thousands of, you know, thousands of skis in stock. I don't know if I'm going to sell them. I remember waking up at like three, four in the morning, just thinking about this is this month. Am I going to sell enough this month? When I'm questioning, why don't I just get a job is because I'm just not happy with, with, status quo I want to make things happen and I enjoy the risk um, if I like when I had a job that I didn't have any personal risk and I was kind of working normal hours all I could think about was what I wanted to do differently you know on my own so that's it I guess I'm just never really settled just want to make things happen all the time and how do you think entrepreneurship has changed you as a person I mean I know you've been doing it for a long time, but how do you think it has changed you? I entrepreneurship changed me in terms of my thinking that, or I guess reaffirmed that nothing is impossible. I mean, I used to say that here and there, you know, just to kind of talk myself into like, I can make this happen, but really it's just a matter of finding a way. Like it's a matter of failing enough times and not giving up because and that's all it is. Like success is not just about nailing it the first time. Success means that you fall and you get up and you do it again a different way and you do it over and over and over until you make it. And if that means you're running out of money all the time while you're falling, then that's part of it is finding more money to sustain it or to adjusting the product, adjusting the price, adjusting the distribution, the sales, like constantly changing 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 until you refine it to a formula that works like nothing there's there's nothing impossible it's just you haven't figured out the way to achieve it yet that's what being an entrepreneur has taught me most what other brands in the industry or even outside of your industry do you really admire and respect and aspire to i really look i don't look in the ski industry at all honestly for inspiration i always am looking outside i've always looked at skateboarding just because they're very fast-paced and progressive but you know i'll also look at big brand i mean like nixon watches it's an odd thing it's a little accessory but they do a great job of keeping things fresh i mean it's basically a watch like what are you going to do new but somehow they always find a way to do it finally jason did i miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? I feel like I said way too much, but 
I think words of advice is anyone can start a company, um, but anyone can come up with an idea as well. It's all about the execution. And first, if you have a job, keep it because it's really going to help you have any income whatsoever. And then I would say test the idea on some friends, like start small, you know, make a little proto or prototype or a product and whatnot. But as soon as you're going to get serious about it, figure out how fast you can outsource as much as possible because a lot of people starting companies get bogged down packing boxes, going to staples to buy more tape to pack boxes, um, making it themselves. I mean, use the freaking internet and there's many more sources than have ever been available and spend your time focusing on managing the company and coming up with the next great idea, the marketing, the sales, the stuff that no one else can do. There's a lot of people that will make things for you, design things for you, um, pack and ship it for you and just get it down to just the essentials of what you're focused on and that way your time is going to be used the best and you'll get the most out of your, uh, your vision. Jason, you've offered some wise and generous advice for us today. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage and for sharing your experiences with us. Right on. Thanks. Thanks for sharing it. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.